my friends, perfection is founded entirely on the love of God. Charity is the bond of perfection, and perfect love of God means the complete union of our will with God's. As Dionysus wrote, the principal effect of love is to unite the wills of those who love each other as to make them will the same things. It follows, then, that the more one unites his will with the divine will, the greater will be his love of God. Mortification, meditation, receiving Holy Communion, acts of fraternal charity are all certainly pleasing to God, but only when they are in accordance with his will. When they do not accord with God's will, he not only finds no pleasure in them, but he even rejects them utterly and punishes them. To illustrate, a man has two servants. One works unremittingly all day long, but according to his own devices. The other conceivably works less, but he does do what he is told. This latter, of course, is going to find favor in the eyes of his master, and the other will not. Now, in applying this example, we may ask, why should we perform actions for God's glory if they're not going to be acceptable to him? God does not want sacrifices, as the prophet Samuel told King Saul, but he does want obedience to his will. As he says, Does the Lord desire holocausts and victims, and not rather that the voice of the Lord should be obeyed? For obedience is better than sacrifices, and to hearken rather than to offer the fat of rams. Because it is like the sin of witchcraft to rebel, and like the crime of idolatry to refuse to obey. The man who follows his own will, independently of God's, is guilty of a kind of idolatry. Instead of adoring God's will, he, in a certain sense, adores his own. The greatest glory we can give God is to do his will in everything. Our Redeemer came on earth to glorify his heavenly Father and to teach us, by his example, how to do the same. St. Paul represents him saying to his eternal Father, Sacrifice and oblation thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast fitted to me. Then said I, Behold, I come to do thy will, O God. Thou hast refused the victims offered thee by man. Thou dost will that I sacrifice my body to thee. Behold me, ready to do thy will. Our Lord frequently declared that he had come on earth not to do his own will, but solely that of his Father. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He spoke in the same strain in the garden when he went forth to meet his enemies who had come to seize him and lead him to death. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father hath given me the commandment, so do I. Arise, and let us go hence. Furthermore, he said he would recognize as his brother him who would do his will. Whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother. 
to do God's will. This was the goal upon which the saints constantly fixed their gaze. They were fully persuaded that in this consists the entire perfection of the soul. Blessed Henry Suso used to say, It is not God's will that we should abound in spiritual delights, but that in all things we should submit to his holy will. Those who give themselves to prayer, says St. Teresa, should concentrate solely on this, the conformity of their wills with the divine will. They should be convinced that this constitutes their highest perfection. The more fully they practice this, the greater the gifts they will receive from God and the greater the progress they will make in the interior life. A certain Dominican nun was given a vision of heaven one day. She recognized there some persons she had known during their mortal life on earth. It was told her these souls were raised to the sublime heights of the seraphs on account of the uniformity of their wills with that of God's during their lifetime here on earth. Blessed Henry Suso, mentioned before, said of himself, I would rather be the vilest worm on earth by God's will than be a seraph by my own. During our sojourn in this world, we should learn from the saints now in heaven how to love God. The pure and perfect love of God they enjoy there consists in uniting themselves perfectly to his will. It would be the greatest delight of the seraphs to pile up sand on the seashore or to pull weeds in a garden for all eternity if they found out such was God's will. Our Lord himself teaches us to ask to do the will of God on earth as the saints do it in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because David fulfilled all his wishes, God called him a man after his own heart. I have found David, a man according to my own heart, who shall do all I will. David was always ready to embrace the divine will as he frequently protested. My heart is ready, O God. My heart is ready. He asked God for one thing alone, to teach him to do his will. Teach me to do thy will. A single act of uniformity with the divine will suffices to make a saint. Behold, while Saul was persecuting the church, God enlightened him and converted him. What does Saul do? What does he say? Nothing else but to offer himself to do God's will. Lord, what wilt thou have me do? In return, the Lord calls him a vessel of election and an apostle of the Gentiles. This man is to me a vessel of election to carry my name before the Gentiles. Absolutely true, because he who gives his will to God gives him everything. He who gives his goods in alms, his blood in scourgings, his food in fasting, gives God what he has. But he who gives God his will, gives himself, gives everything he is, such a one can say, though I am poor, Lord, I give thee all I possess. 
But when I say I give thee my will, I have nothing left to give thee. This is exactly what God requires of us. My son, give me thy heart. St. Augustine's comment is, There is nothing more pleasing we can offer God than to say to him, Possess thyself of us. We cannot offer God anything more pleasing than to say, Take us, Lord. We give thee our entire will. Only let us know thy will, and we will carry it out. If we would completely rejoice the heart of God, let us strive in all things to conform ourselves to his divine will. Let us not only strive to conform ourselves, but also to unite ourselves to whatever dispositions God makes of us. Conformity signifies that we join our wills to the will of God. Uniformity means more. It means that we make one will of God's will and ours, so that we will only what God wills, that God's will alone is our will. This is the summit of perfection, and to it we should always aspire. This should be the goal of all our works, desires, meditations, and prayers. To this end, we should always invoke the aid of our holy patrons, our guardian angels, and above all, our mother Mary, the most perfect of all the saints because she most perfectly embraced the divine will. The essence of perfection is to embrace the will of God in all things, prosperous or adverse. In prosperity, even sinners find it easy to unite themselves to the divine will. But it takes saints to unite themselves to God's will when things go wrong and are painful to self-love. Our conduct in such instances is the measure of our love of God. St. John of Avila used to say, One blessed be God in times of adversity is worth more than a thousand acts of gratitude in times of prosperity. Furthermore, we must unite ourselves to God's will, not only in things that come to us directly from his hands, such as sickness, desolation, poverty, death of relatives, but likewise in those we suffer from man. For example, contempt, injustice, loss of reputation, loss of temporal goods, and all kinds of persecution. On these occasions, we must remember that while God does not will the sin, he does will our humiliation, our poverty, or our mortification, as the case may be. It is certain and of faith that whatever happens, happens by the will of God. I am the Lord, forming the light and creating the darkness, making peace and creating evil. From God come all things, good as well as evil. We call adversities evil. Actually, they are good and meritorious when we receive them as coming from God's hands. Shall there be evil in a city which the Lord hath not done? Good things and evil, life and death, 
poverty and riches are from God. It is true, when one offends us unjustly, God does not will his sin, nor does he concur in the sinner's bad will, but God does, in a general way, concur in the material action by which such a one strikes us, robs us, or does us an injury, so that God certainly wills the offense we suffer, and it comes to us from his hands. Thus the Lord told David he would be the author of those things that he would suffer at the hands of Absalom. I will raise up evils against thee out of thy own house, and I will take thy wives before thy face and give them to thy neighbor. Hence, too, God told the Jews that in punishment for their sins he would send the Assyrians to plunder them and spread destruction among them. The Assyrian is the rod and staff of my anger. I will send him to take away the spoils. Assyrian wickedness served as God's scourge for the Hebrews, is St. Augustine's comment on this text. And our Lord himself told St. Peter that his sacred passion came not so much from man as from his father. The chalice which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? When the messenger came to announce to Job that the Sabaeans had plundered his goods and slain his children, he said, The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. He did not say, The Lord hath given me my children and my possessions, and the Sabaeans have taken them away. He realized that adversity had come upon him by the will of God. Therefore he added, As it hath pleased the Lord, so it is done. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We must not therefore consider the afflictions that come upon us as happening by chance or solely from the malice of men. We should be convinced that what happens happens by the will of God. A propos of this, it is related that two martyrs, Epictetus and Atho, being put to the torture by having their bodies raked with iron hooks and burnt with flaming torches, kept repeating, Work thy will upon us, O Lord. Arrived at the place of execution, they exclaimed, Eternal God, be thou blessed in that thy will has been entirely accomplished in us. Caesarius points up what we have been saying by offering this incident in the life of a certain monk. Externally, his religious observance was the same as that of the other monks, but he had attained such sanctity that by the mere touch of his garments he healed the sick. Marveling at these deeds, since his life was no more exemplary than the lives of the other monks, the superior asked him one day what was the cause of these miracles. He replied that he too was mystified and was at a loss how to account for such happenings. What devotions do you practice? asked the abbot. He answered that there was little or nothing special that he did beyond making a great deal of willing only what God willed, and that God had given him the grace of abandoning his will totally to the will of God. 
Prosperity does not lift me up, nor adversity cast me down, added the monk. I direct all my prayers to the end that God's will may be done fully in me and by me. That raid that our enemies made against the monastery the other day, in which our stores were plundered, our granaries put to the torch and our cattle driven off, did not this misfortune cause you any resentment? queried the abbot. No, father, came the reply. On the contrary, I returned thanks to God, as is my custom in such circumstances, fully persuaded that God does all things or permits all that happens for his glory and for our greater good. Thus I am always at peace, no matter what happens. Seeing such uniformity with the will of God, the abbot no longer wondered why the monk worked so many miracles. Acting according to this pattern, one not only becomes holy, but also enjoys perpetual serenity in this life. Alphonsus, the great king of Aragon, being asked one day whom he considered the happiest person in the world, answered, He who abandons himself to the will of God and accepts all things, prosperous and adverse, as coming from his hands. To those that love God, all things work together unto good. Those who love God are always happy because their whole happiness is to fulfill, even in adversity, the will of God. Afflictions do not mar their serenity, because by accepting misfortune, they know they give pleasure to the beloved Lord. Whatever shall befall the just man, it shall not make him sad. Indeed, what can be more satisfactory to a person than to experience the fulfillment of all his desires? This is the happy lot of the man who wills only what God wills, because everything that happens, save sin, happens through the will of God. There is a story to this effect in the lives of the fathers about a farmer whose crops were more plentiful than those of his neighbors. On being asked how this happened with such unvarying regularity, he said he was not surprised, because he always had the kind of weather he wanted. He was asked to explain. He said, It is so because I want whatever kind of weather God wants. And because I do, he gives me the harvests I want. If souls resigned to God's will are humiliated, says Salvian, they want to be humiliated. If they are poor, they want to be poor. In short, whatever happens is acceptable to them. Hence, they are truly at peace in this life. In cold and heat, in rain and wind, the soul united to God says, I want it to be warm, to be cold, windy, to rain, because God wills it. This is the beautiful freedom of the sons of God, and it is worth vastly more than all the rank and distinction of blood and birth, more than all the kingdoms in the world. This is the abiding peace, which, in the experience of the saints, surpasseth all understanding. It surpasses all pleasures rising from gratification of the senses, from social gatherings, banquets, and other worldly amusements, vain and deceiving as they are. 
they captivate the senses for the time being, but bring no lasting contentment. Rather, they afflict man in the depth of his soul, where alone true peace can reside. Solomon, who tasted to satiety all the pleasures of the world, and found them bitter, voiced his disillusionment thus. But this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. A fool, says the Holy Spirit, is changed as the moon, but a holy man continueth in wisdom as the sun. The fool, that is, the sinner, is as changeable as the moon, which today waxes and tomorrow wanes. Today he laughs, tomorrow he cries. Today he's meek as a lamb, tomorrow crosses a bear. Why? Because his peace of mind depends on the prosperity or the adversity he meets. He changes with the changes in the things that happen to him. The just man is like the sun, constant in his serenity no matter what betides him. His calmness of soul is founded on his union with the will of God. Hence, he enjoys unruffled peace. This is the peace promised by the angel of the nativity, and on earth peace to men of good will. Who are these men of good will, if not those whose wills are united to the infinitely good and perfect will of God? The good and the acceptable and the perfect will God. By uniting themselves to the divine will, the saints have enjoyed paradise by anticipation in this life, accustoming themselves to receive all things from the hands of God, says St. Dorotheus. The men of old maintained continual serenity of soul. St. Mary Magdalene of Pazzi derived such consolations at hearing the words, will of God, that she usually fell into an ecstasy of love. The instances of jangling irritation that are bound to arise will not fail to make surface impact on the senses. This, however, will be experienced only in the inferior part of the soul. In the superior part will reign peace and tranquility as long as our will remains united with God's. Our Lord assured his apostles, Your joy no man shall take from you. Your joy shall be full. He who unites his will to God's experiences a full and lasting joy. Full because he has what he wants, as was explained before. Lasting because no one can take his joy from him, since no one can prevent what God wills from happening. The devout father John Toller relates this personal experience. For years, he had prayed God to send him someone who would teach him the real spiritual life. One day at prayer, he heard a voice saying, Go to such and such a church and you will have the answer to your prayers. He went and at the door of the church he found a beggar, barefooted and in rags. He greeted the mendicant saying, Good day, my friend. Thank you, sir, for your kind wishes, but I do not recall ever having a bad day. Then God has certainly given you a very happy life. That is very true, sir. I have never been unhappy. 
in saying this, I'm not making any rash statement either. This is the reason. When I have nothing to eat, I give thanks to God. When it rains or snows, I bless God's providence. When someone insults me, drives me away, or otherwise mistreats me, I give glory to God. I said, I've never had an unhappy day, and it's the truth, because I'm accustomed to will unreservedly what God wills. Whatever happens to me, sweet or bitter, I gladly receive from his hands as what is best for me. Hence, my unvarying happiness. Where did you find God? I found him where I left creatures. Who are you anyway? I am a king. And where is your kingdom? In my soul where everything is in good order, where the passions obey reason, and reason obeys God. How have you come to such a state of perfection? By silence. I practice silence towards men while I cultivate the habit of speaking with God. Conversing with God is the way I found and maintain my peace of soul. Union with God brought this poor beggar to the very heights of perfection. In his poverty, he was richer than the mightiest monarch. In his sufferings, he was vastly happier than worldlings amid their worldly delights. <laughs>